Amanda, we've all had it. You know, we go to a lot of restaurants. You know that moment where you realize that you're going to have a mediocre restaurant experience? Yes. And the next two hours of your life are going to not be as good as they could have, especially someone like us. We have so much pressure when going with other people. But I will say, on the bright side, it's just one night. Yeah, the stakes aren't that high, but you know where the stakes are very high? I do know. Choosing a financial advisor. Luckily... We have Betterment. Betterment is an online financial advisor for people who refuse to settle for average. They use cutting-edge technology to build personalized portfolios and help you make more from your investments. Then they guide you along the way with advice to help you make smart financial decisions. All of this for one low transparent fee. Investing involves risk. But the Eater Upsell listeners can get up to one year managed for free by visiting betterment.com slash eater. Betterment.com slash E-A-T-E-R. Betterment, outsmart average. Welcome to the Eater Upsell, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is Amanda Clute, Editor-in-Chief of Eater. I'm joined, as always, by Daniel Janine. Hi, Daniel. Amanda Clute. Hey. The, hey. the, the leaves are not turning no, yet. No, no. And I'll tell you this. What are you going to tell me? It's hot. It's hot as hell. It's hot as hell. I just moved into a new apartment. There's no AC yet. I don't know how people live like this during a heat wave because you can't make any rational decisions when it's this hot out. But anyway. It's Your a- rational decision would be to go to a hotel. I know. <laughs> I almost <laughs> did that last night. A lot of people don't have air conditioning. A lot of people just, yeah, don't have it. I don't know how they do it. Well, they do it because they don't have it. Well, I mean, of course, people who are. But what about people who make the choice to not have air conditioning versus people who are. I think they're training themselves. For when they're homeless. For when they're, or a, the, a nuclear apocalypse. Oh, Okay. You know? That's smart. Yeah. Sure. Brochalists. Yeah. Brochalists. <laughs> I haven't heard that before. I really like it. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. People who are um, less fortunate than I, who can't afford air conditioning, I feel very bad for them. People who can, but then a ch- to choose not to. Yeah. I just can't. I don't understand. I, I, I love it when they have a reason, but the, it, some people always have that, like, they're being competitive with themselves or competitive. Yeah. They like, just think they can... But I think it makes you... It's like people who, 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 who want to ski the most possible amount of runs on a day at the ski hill. Like, just you're there to ski to enjoy it, not so right, you can, right. like, notch your belt. Like life endurance. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, it is real hot. It's still technically summer. Uh, it feels the same as it did last week, but... But we need content. It's post-Labor Day, <laughs> and this is the best time to start talking about fall preview Fall is my favorite season. It's when all the most exciting restaurants open. It's when all the cookbooks come out. It's when all the great food TV shows come out. People like to have, like, resolutions at New Year's. People like to have big life changes at the spring because, like, the flowers are coming out. But this is the real – this is the real go time. This is when you get really serious with yourself. So fall is a very exciting time for all things restaurant opening. Mm -hmm. And – What are we going to talk about today? So today we are bringing on three experts. We are talking to Bill Addison, roving restaurant critic for Eater, to talk about the restaurants that are opening this fall that he is very excited about. We're going to talk to Greg Morabito, our pop culture editor, uh, to hear about the new shows coming to mostly Netflix, but also some other other stations and services. Yeah, the dawn of food Netflix. Yeah, Netflix is really going all in. Uh, and and then, then we're going to talk to Daniela Galarza, who is our cookbook obsessive here at Eater, about her big fall preview 
and the cookbook's coming out this fall. Spoiler alert, Ina Garden does have a cookbook, which means it's going to be a banner year in the world of cookbooks at large. It's like our Game of Thrones, baby. Yes. <laughs> Great. Well, let's, uh, let's get into it. Let's get into it. We're joined by Bill Addison, who is our national critic. Bill, why is the fall the most exciting time for restaurant openings? Kind of for the same reason it's the most exciting time for publishing. You know, everyone's been gone for the summer. Everyone's kind of scattered. And so all the energy is focused on this, like, kind of pre-holiday moment in the American calendar, the world calendar, but in America, where it's like September feels so good and October and you're energized and it's fall and... So it's more about us. It's like we're back. What's opening? Not that all the no, restaurants. No, no, no. The no. whole world functions like that. Okay. Like they, everyone's the, back. No, the restaurants cater to that need. They wait. They will hold their opening for the fall because they know people are excited. You don't open a big deal restaurant in the summertime because no one cares. Everyone's on vacation. Mm-hmm. People don't feel like spending a ton of money and going out and it's hot. But like in October, that's when you open a big deal restaurant. It's crisp. You can look good in your layers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So at the end of every summer, uh, we put together this big package about the big new openings that we should be expecting. Hillary Dixler, who can't be here today, uh, is really the driving force behind it. But Bill, you are aware of everything that's going on. Absolutely. I'm always um, super grateful for Hillary's work on this because I love this, the through line at Eater that Hillary thinks really hard about what's coming up. And then I use this Kind of as a literal roadmap. It's like your guide yeah, to, what exactly. to what to look at. I, I'm keeping an eye open. Um, so the way Hillary breaks it down, we have some categories for upcoming openings. Well, first, we though, go? we're going to talk about the most exciting restaurant city in America, oh. Dan. <laughs> okay. Bill is, okay. uh, disclosure, moving to L.A. <laughs> oh, so your before, big reveal. So, yep. oh, that, I no, mean, no, it's fine. Is that a secret? N- I, you I heard it so, here first, yep, folks. That's it. I'm moving to Los Angeles. Uh, so first, tell us, what are you excited about in Los Angeles? And then we'll talk about the rest of the country. There are three restaurants. Hillary really highlights two restaurant openings, but mentions a third that has been a long time in the works um, that we've been waiting for forever. And so we've been waiting for it for so long that um, <laughs> we couldn't include it on this list. But it is Jessica Largie's tasting menu restaurant, Simone. It's going to open in L.A.'s Arts District. She was the chef de cuisine at... Um, Manresa. At Manresa and Los Gatos. And she won the James Beard Rising Star Chef Award in 2015. Eater Young Gun. And she's an Eater Young Gun mm-hmm. right off the top of, of the bat. Um, so it looks like I there's an opening date, apparently. It is September yes. 20th for that. So, nice. yeah, I'm going to be booking my reservations. Um, so then two other... L.A. restaurants that we're super excited about. One is Mei Lin of Nightshade. Um, she won Top Chef, the 12th season of Top Chef, and she's been doing a lot of traveling, and she's doing pop-ups since then, and now she's um, doing this restaurant that is just going to be very L.A., a lot of, like, mishmash of, of ingredients. I saw, like, Hargal Tortelloni on her Instagram yeah, feed. Yeah, like Mapo Tofu Lasagna. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> some cool ideas. Um, and then Antico, which continues the awesomeness of pasta restaurants in Los Angeles, like Felix and Rosso Blue, which have uh, opened in the last few years. This one, Antico, is from Chad Colby, who kind of made his name at Kispaka, at Nancy Silverton's Kispaka. So Los Angeles 
Looking. Is this good. a Nancy Silverton restaurant as well, it or is this is this is Chad Colby going out on his own? It's Chad going out on his own. Okay, great. Yes, Kispaka is very good. So it's, yes, that's exciting. It's one of the first restaurants I went to when I started this job in mm-hmm. 2014. Bill, how do you how are you thinking about next the fall in in restaurants? I like that Hillary breaks it down by theme in her piece because it just helps for me to contextualize things and think mm-hmm. about you know. Um, trends that she may have spotted that then I'll see in other parts of the country like she mentions say that Japanese fine dining kind of continues apace and she points out um, a restaurant by Mari Katsumura that um, is supposedly opening in September but doesn't have a name quite yet. Kaiseki is something you've been talking about for a few years you don't see that going anywhere? That's interesting I feel like uh, that trend maybe slowed down a little. I, I was expecting to see a lot more of it. But these things come and go just the way that, um, you know, maybe there was a, a pullback in really exciting um, Korean restaurants opening. Then David Chang opened Major Domo in L.A. earlier this year. And then a to- at Automix um, in Manhattan, which I went to last night with Ryan Sutton. And How was it? It was so good. Oh, wow. It was one of the best okay. meals I had this year, hands down. Damn. Yeah, you need to go. Okay, I'll go. Yeah. But back to Japanese food. It seems like there are some other Japanese restaurants that aren't aren't kaiseki that are coming up. Like um, we mentioned um, Tim Maslow's new restaurant, which is Japanese inspired, but I haven't seen what that really looks like yet. Um, Tim Maslow is a big star chef in Boston who kind of departed the scene controversially and is now back Aha! with a restaurant called Whaling in Oklahoma. I I mean, great name. Oklahoma, like... Whaling in Oklahoma. In Uh, Boston. Yeah, a white white guy from Boston doing a Japanese-inspired restaurant called Whaling in Oklahoma. (laughs) I'm excited for you to go. (laughs) Uh, Yes, uh, me too. Very interesting. Bill, is Boston on the come up? Stop it. (laughs) You're baiting me, Dan. Dan is referring to a story that uh, my colleague in arms, food critic Deborah First, wrote in the Boston Globe about how, why Boston doesn't win more national awards. And I gave quotes to that piece. I went to college in Boston, and I love Boston, but Boston, yeah, you're a fine food town, man, but you're a good, like, city food town. And I'm not, it's not... Uh, why, why isn't it winning national awards, in your opinion? Um, like, why doesn't it excite you? I don't feel like I'm seeing a lot of – I know like – and I'll just preface this by saying like I know this kind of talk really pisses chefs off. Like they just want to – Oh, we do... have an op-ed running soon Okay, from a see, chef. Good. Yeah. I am not about on this topic? Yeah. Oh, wow. Of course we do. It's yeah. leader. We're always, <laughs> always thinking ahead. So, yeah. <laughs> no, someone I, reached out. It was oh, like, wow. I'm pissed. I want to write an op-ed. And we're like, all right. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm not surprised. And, yeah, because this pisses them off. And I get it. But my job is to be looking at not only what is essential in the, the country, a part of my job that I really love, but if I'm looking for, like, a city that really feels energized from within – um, and is kind of creating things that are – are. Um, it doesn't have to be new like a cuisine that we've never heard of before, but just a perspective, a, a personality, something to the cuisine that kind of – that makes it stand out on a national level. I'm not seeing a lot of that out of Boston. What I um, loved in this piece by Deborah First was the conversation about 
the factors that really lead to that uh, from a city perspective. For example, it's very, very expensive to open a restaurant in Boston. It's $400,000 to get a liquor license. Um, But you don't have the numbers that New York has. So you don't have enough people to go to your restaurant in the way that New York does. But also you have to have a lot of money to open the place. Yeah. So you have better restaurants opening in New York and you have better restaurants opening in a cheaper city like Portland, Portland, where if you don't have that backing, you can kind of just make it happen anyway. Right. And so the restaurants that are opening are by necessity kind of on the safer side so people are like yeah you can't do something risky whereas here in new york you still can do something risky because there's enough of the population that will try it yeah and honestly i feel like too the media is so saturated here that if somebody takes a risk that wins someone's gonna try to find it and then yeah and then the media will like blow it up and everyone will go there i was talking i was hanging out with some boston people this weekend we were talking about it and they were saying that's not just restaurants, it's all of culture in Boston. It's fashion, it's comedy, it's everything. It's like this big, boring money mm. is in Boston, but there's not a lot of like creativity. There's not a lot of ways to thrive if you don't have major backing. That's kind of a bummer. Yeah. Especially choices. for a college town. Right. I know. So, yeah. the And the cheap... Stuff is just always kind of, you know, it's, yeah, it's a college town. So it always is what it is. You can always yeah. find a decent slice of pizza there, or a cheap bowl of noodles. But anyway, listeners, if you have thoughts about Boston and you want to disagree with us, please write into upsellateater.com. Speaking of, did you read Brett Martin's piece in GQ about Houston? Yes, I did. Because He's he also writer. talks about how there's a lack of regulation in Houston, which has led to all kinds of creative restaurants and a bit of a restaurant boom. I mean, I mean, Houston is so complicated that there's a lot that plays yes. into that restaurant scene, but I think if we're just talking about what a city can do. Brett is such a beautiful writer that, you know, I saw it and I was like, okay, well, here's Brett's piece on Houston, but then he makes such a beautiful layered yeah. case that I'm like... Thank you. Yeah, you think like, oh, I've read this before, and then you read it. It's like, no, there's a lot of new stuff in here. So wait, what is he bringing to the Houston conversation that wasn't there? Well, first of all, I think those um, city factors, like it's very easy to get up and running versus another city. I guess just, you know, the the fact, too, that it's so sprawling that unlike Boston, which is a tiny, you know, finite city that's so expensive like in Houston is huge huge and and so there's no one concentration right people are used to traveling right exactly Mm -hmm. they'll drive they're flourishing neighborhoods all over the place so he calls it ugly like LA (laughs) I know I take that as a compliment (laughs) no no it's nice it's like (laughs) it's an interesting thing though I guess if you have no defined core then you have no pressure to squeeze your restaurant into a certain area. Yeah, and if people are, I think like you just said, if they're used to driving, that's just part of their mentality and they're, they're a little more experimental. Mm-hmm. And there's just like, he, I mean, this has been talked about in so many pieces, but the commingling, commingling of different cultures in Houston is, is very intense. So people are very used to going outside of their comfort zones, whereas I think that was one of Dever's arguments about Boston is people don't eat they don't they don't want to go outside of what they're used to so they eat a lot of like raw bars and american food but they don't want to have something else and there it's like you have such a huge 
Vietnamese population and God knows who Yeah, it's the most racially diverse city in America by one study pretty recently. I think the other thing that's interesting too, and um, Amanda, Boston is your hometown, so you tell me if I'm off base on this, (laughs) but having lived there for four years, I feel like... um, Boston is a very mannered city. Mm, yeah. But, I would say uptight. Right? Yeah. So there you go. See, mm-hmm. I was, I'm Southern, so I was trying to be nice. But, <laughs> um, you know, Brett says in this piece, like, Houston is cool because Houston doesn't, doesn't give a fuck about being cool. Right, right, right. Yeah. It is not, in fact, mm-hmm. uptight or mannered. It just very much is what it is. Mm-hmm. Talking about a defined city, we could talk about a defined food category, which is Barbecue, and one of the topics this year, mm-hmm. I think, is that the idea of barbecue is being... Sure, are you getting us back on track? I, I'm trying. How's okay, it working? Okay, let's, let's, let's do it. Yeah, let's get back on yeah, track. Yeah, the idea of barbecue is being expanded. I think that, you know, Ugly Delicious talked about this, but what really is barbecue? And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are accepting a lot more varieties of meat cooked on flame as barbecue, and which makes it fun and part of the barbecue conversation. Yeah, I just feel like, you know, barbecue is one of the great American culinary traditions, and but it's also very American to want to experiment and innovate and put your own mark on something. So I, I'm not surprised by this moment where what is barbecue and how barbecue is presented and what is paired with is, is expanding in some interesting ways. Mm-hmm. What um, kind of barbecue are you excited about this year, opening up? Um, what am I excited about? Um, Madame Vo Barbecue is opening. This is really interesting because it's almost like a Vietnamese barbecue, like mm-hmm. a Vietnamese mm-hmm. variation on a steakhouse. That's in New York. That's here. That is in New York, yes, in the East Village. Yeah. Um, have you I'm, been to Madame Vo already? Yes, I have. Do you like it? Yeah, I do like it. I have I too, have, I yeah. I haven't been yet. Really? Yeah. We can go there. All right. Uh, Madame Vo is a funny place because it actually, I think that a lot of people would, would, would agree that uh, Manhattan has a shortage of of cool, good uh, Vietnamese food. Mm-hmm. And Madame Vo and a place called Hanoi House opened at the same mm-hmm. time in the East Village, and Hanoi House was the one that got all the press. Mm. And it, I, I think, actually, it deserved it, because when uh, when Madame Vo opened, I love Vietnamese food, so I was there immediately. It wasn't great. It tasted, it just seemed like anything else that was in the village. Yeah, and sometimes a restaurant really needs... Some time. But now Some it's... Time. Amazing, and yeah. I just feel like, to put it simply, it's gotten funkier and funkier. And oh, cool! Ooh, okay, that's fun. Uh-huh. So them doing a barbecue is very, very exciting to me. And then um, Billy Durney, yeah, is opening a spinoff of Hometown, and Hometown is one of the best barbecue spots in New York. It's very. It's, if not it's, America. If not, I mean, maybe. I'm, uh, I maybe. Whoa, New Yorkers. <laughs> Hometown is super good. Yeah, but. Don't don't come for Austin. Like it's really good, but then yeah, when you yeah. go, my point about hometown is that it's it's varied. It's like not one style. It's not like brisket only. He does all kinds of things, and that's always been his point of view. Is like I'm doing New York barbecue, which means I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want. So I'm going to have Vietnamese chicken wings, mm-hmm. and I'm going to do all kinds of weird sausage, and I'm going to have brisket, and it doesn't hew to a, a type. And I think he's expanding upon that with a sort of tavern that he's opening that's going to be like fried chicken, yeah. burgers, things like that. But then there's casual but not boring as a category among our most anticipated restaurants. 
Um, there are two I'm really excited about. Field Trip by J.J. Johnson. Field Trip. It's like we've been waiting forever for this concept. I know. I went to his pop-up at Chef's Club last right. fall. It yeah. was really good. So I've been waiting for him to have a restaurant. This is J.J. Johnson we're talking about. Um, so I'm, yeah, excited. But then down in Savannah... One of my favorite restaurants oh, in the country. right. The Gray. The Gray, which I gave um, as Eater's 2017 Restaurant of the Year last year. The Gray. Such a beautiful um, space revamped in an old Greyhound bus station. And now um, the partners there, Mishama Bailey and Jono Morisano, are opening – a um, like a counter, like a lunch counter kind of situation. They're they're thinking of it as kind of a combination of the like the bodega culture that they both know, being New Yorkers, and the the Southern counter restaurant, which is like near to near and dear to my heart. So I'm psyched about this. Bill, what else? What else um, is on the agenda for you for the next? I've got to say, months. you know what? Let's bring it back to Boston since we uh, veered off into that conversation. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, Karen Akunowitz, um, one of the categories for this most anticipated restaurants in the fall is Nerdy Italian. And along with Antico in Los Angeles, which we discussed earlier, is Fox and the Knife coming from Karen Akunowitz, who just won a beard um, for her um, chefing at Myers and Chang, and so she's veering away from the Chinese, Taiwanese, Vietnamese flavors at Myers and Chang, and is is going full pasta. It's been a lot of pasta, but I never, I don't ever get tired. No one gets of tired it. of pasta. Nope, never. Well, and she spent a year in Modena, and um, I don't know if you guys all watched uh, what's the Aziz Ansari show, Master of None, Master of None, yeah. but like he has a little internship in Modena with all these like grandmas yeah. making pasta and she says she did that for oh, a year. Oh, that's so cool. And I keep thinking of that as I imagine this restaurant. Like <laughs> she must be amazing at making fucking tortellinis. Yeah. So Boston, you got something You got something you got something coming. You got something coming. Tell me about what's coming to Vegas, Bill. Vegas, which is man, it's so interesting. People have so many opinions about dining in Vegas. I need to get back there. I, I, my opinion is slightly lower than some people. Dan's going soon. Mm-hmm. See, I need a, I need a front runner report there, Dan, please. Um, but this one looks really good because when the when I went um, for my first visit for this job to Las Vegas back in 2014, I went to a restaurant I really liked called Chata Street, which was from an alum bank. Achawaran, who uh, worked at the very famous Lotus of Siam that Jonathan Gold um, put on the the map at Mm -hmm. Gourmet, right? And so um, Achawaran's um, Chata Street closed, but he's coming back with a new restaurant called La Mai. And it's just 40 seats. And it's going to really focus in on... Thai flavors, and we're, I'm so, like, that's the one that I'm super excited looks, to go to. It looks to. really cool, and I love that he's a big wine guy. Yes. Uh, he was the Lotus of Siam wine guy, and that's one of the things that Lotus of Siam was known for it, is really delicious Thai food and amazing Riesling. Amazing Rieslings, and I think, so, like, some orangey stuff in later years and things that, yeah, yeah it just sounds. Amanda, you're going to hate me for going off track, but, Bill, when you go to Vegas as the national critic, are yep. you even eating at the hotel restaurants? Are you interested at the big... The casino restaurants? The casino restaurants? Yeah. I mean, you have to be. They're part of the context of that yeah. dining scene, whether you like them or not. I mean, I, I do... Um, 
I'm more curious about what's off the strip, but you have to pay attention to what's going on there, certainly. I mean, I don't know. I, I, it's been a few years since I've had anything that I really loved in one of those casino restaurants or a hotel restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, Did you go to Giada's place yet? No. We're going to go. You're going to go, right? Uh, yeah, for so sure. So we back. We, I mean, we interviewed her, and I was like, oh check this out mm-hmm. let's see yeah, how she, you well, pump she out sold all those us, but that's why we're not critics <laughs> <laughs> we're charmed by people okay we'll go see see if that restaurant is as charming as Giada herself is and you let me know impossible. it will be impossible <laughs> impossible no um, what is what is good that's on strip like what's a Jose honestly Andres? I think that uh, yes Jose, oh yeah, that's Didn't you have honestly like a mixed bag there. I but I still think that it's my favorite. Like the first place that I'm gonna go is um, China Poblano. China Poblano, yeah. We had I had one just amazing meal there, and I was like, "What? This is it? Like this is the place that I love most in Vegas?" And then brought some eater colleagues back and we were so excited and then we all like like, dug in and it was like wait why is this food not as magic as it was two days ago Mm -hmm. so um so i gotta go back and see how that that rolls but um so that but i still would send people there that's a strong consender and maybe lean more that's what makes food writing so interesting is you get to have a lot of debates because people have completely different experiences. Yes. And most people are basing their experience off of one visit, especially when they're traveling. Yeah. And they can say, Chino de Poblano is just like the best goddamn restaurant in all of Vegas. <laughs> and then I go two days later and it's like, oh, this was shit. Yeah. And then you don't trust the and person. And then you don't trust then, them yeah. forever. <laughs> you and you're like, this person has terrible taste. Yeah. So. It's like, you had one job. <laughs> I was doing my good job in the moment. Who knows? But that is, there's no, there's nothing worse than like, you know, people that I know like well or even tangentially like to text me when I've gone to a, when they've gone to a best new restaurant and they were like, I'm always like, was it in fact? It's so, yeah, it's anxiety inducing. <laughs> yeah. So, um, usually I have a pretty decent rate, so I'm happy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Pretty decent rate is all you can hope for it really in, this, is. in this work. An above average hitter. <laughs> I'm an above average hitter. Hmm. So with, um, we're talking about anticipated openings, which, you know, they're going to open between now and December, early December. Our fingers How are do you, in your role, try to figure out when to hit them up? Because if it's too early, they might not be ready, but you got you to gotta get there before, you know, you're publishing your list next July. Yes. Um, so I... We'll say I've published a list, and but then I'm also writing reviews sometimes if they're super interesting and mm-hmm. and and worth national attention. I would say as a city critic, you gave something a month to six weeks. That's yeah, my that's personal. What we do. Yep, and then from a national standpoint, I'd say I give it like two to three months mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. before you'll go for a first visit. Before I go for a first visit actually before I go to fully review it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I go and it's been really hyped up and it's not good, then I'm then I'm just like, okay, well I'll come back later. Right. Or I'll or I'll keep my ear to the ground, ask people I trust in that city. And if they say hasn't I don't think it's evolved since when you've there, then I'll just skip it altogether. Mm-hmm. There's plenty else to cover. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So great. Anything else we should know about this fall dining season? Other than to get excited? Ex- get excited and to go read the article. What's the best sweater that? to wear in a restaurant? It's <sighs> mm. a good Greg Morbido question, actually. <laughs> yeah, because I'm not the biggest. I'm a 
blazer wearer. Ooh. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh-oh, you're going to be outed. I know, no, mm-hmm. yeah, just kidding. Um, yeah, I'm moving to the West Coast, so maybe the blazers will disappear. Yeah, or they that, turn linen. Now that when Bill moves to LA, I'm very excited to see what happens. Like, Semi fashion. Yeah. Like, no more blazers, even more Oof. fit. Yeah. Are you going oh, to get, get even more fit? Are you going to get tan? No, I'll never get tan because wrinkles. No, I'm at a very, yes. yeah, I got to keep it. I love that that's been the transition of like it being okay to be super pale and covered in sunscreen. Yes. And like always with the umbrella because that was always my vibe. (laughs) But like when I was in my early 20s, all my friends, like we go to the beach and it was all about putting oil on and suntan. And it's like, that doesn't work for me. Yep. Me neither. Mm -mm. Me neither. Maybe that's why Dude. we're all friends. <laughs> that's why we're all great. Pasty as hell. Hey, so this room. Yeah. just to wrap it up, can we get your number one most anticipated opening of the fall? My number one most anticipated uh, opening based on Hillary's list is Nightshade in Los Angeles. Maylin. Mm, Maylin. But then also Simone. But also Simone. We've got two powerhouse chefs coming down the line. I'm waiting for it. One of the biggest parts of Fall Preview is TV. So we wanted to bring our pop culture editor, Greg Morbido, back on the show to talk about the shows that he's excited about. And also, Greg, we kind of want to ask you what you don't really care about. Like, what's going to be on that's just you're going to be rolling your eyes yeah, at? Yeah, it's my favorite question. <laughs> hey, Amanda and Dan. Um, so uh, first... Yeah, Fall TV <laughs> Preview. It's it's uh, There's a lot that's coming out between now and New Year's Day that I am really excited about. Uh, I think that... Netflix is really poised to potentially kind of change the food TV landscape, maybe, this fall, because they have a mm. bunch of ambitious shows coming out. The one that I'm most excited about uh, for, for everyone to see and for that to be out there in the world is Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, which is a four-part series based on Samin Nosrat's book of the same name. Samin is this uh, former chef. She worked at Chez Panisse in Berkeley, and she worked in a bunch of different places. Um, And she's like a recipe guru, but while she was working in kitchens, she basically created all these, formulated all these ideas that are sort of universal principles of cooking, where if you understand them, you don't need a recipe. And every cuisine around the world uses a few of these big tenants. And so, you know, they're broken down into four big ones, salt, fat, acid, heat. So I think it's going to be this interesting hybrid of like a travel series, a cooking demonstration show, and something along the lines of like what Vox does with their explainers. So very excited for that. Fun. And then the other big Netflix show that's coming down the line, which is a big mystery, a big question mark. I think that has the potential to be kind of a game changer in terms of cooking competitions is this program called The Final Table, which will feature Mm. The Final Table. The name doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. Um, I feel like Netflix is trying to sort (laughs) of... No, and it's almost confusing. It's almost confusing, but I think that the conceit of the show will make it make more sense, and that is that there is a final table, and seated at this table, I'm assuming this is what it is, is that there are nine superstar chefs from around the world um, who in each round are going to, there's going to be competitors and the first nine rounds are going to have challenges based on the cuisines of these chefs' like homelands, like, you know, where they're from. So they've assembled some really famous people. Um, some of them are, are not super famous in America, which is why I'm excited because you get to learn more. But like 
For example, they have uh, Elena Rizzo from Brazil. They have Claire Smith from England. Uh, Grant Ackett is representing the U.S. Uh, Enrique Olvera is representing Mexico. So they're going to basically oversee these challenges based on the cuisines that are their specialties. And then it's going to culminate in one big cook-off. And the winner of that will get mm-hmm. to join the elder statespeople chef at the final table. So... Where um, they all like yeah. take cyanide pills. Yeah. Yes, and they're all gonna kill each other. No, I don't know. Um <laughs> just love that the implication is that the final table is some some grand honor, like this show is gonna go on forever. Well, you know, I think that could be the idea. I mean, Netflix has branched out into cooking competitions a little bit this year, but they're they've been very lighthearted, like Nailed It, which I love, is a cooking mm-hmm. competition. They have a baking show that is Pretty underrated, I think, and I'm surprised that it hasn't taken off more called Sugar Rush, which is just a pretty straightforward Mm -hmm. but entertaining show. And then they have this marijuana cookery show called Cooking on High that's like totally ridiculous. But this is kind of their first big gamble on a high gloss real cooking competition like Top Chef or Master Chef or even Chopped. And I think considering the people that are involved and the big names that have signed on for it, it's it's going to be a pretty big deal. So looking forward to that. When you write about things on the Food Network and things on on traditional cable, like are people mm-hmm. still as interested in that stuff or are people only interested in what's available on, on Netflix and the streaming services? That is a good question. I think that people consume those two categories of TV in totally different ways. And the Food Network, I think, is something that people still really like in the cooking channel and the travel channel and those sort of basic cable things. But they're a lot more like you put it on and you put it on maybe while you're vacuuming or you put it on while you're looking at your phone or you put it on while you're cooking or something or, you know, or you're just so addicted to chopped that you, you know, it's like your comfort food television and you watch it every night. But, you know, I think that these other like streaming platforms like Netflix and even Amazon is dabbling into some food stuff and, you know, anything that's on one of these hot new new platforms or online or like Facebook Watch or any of these new platforms, I feel like um, people have more of a sense of discovery with them and sort of a proprietary feeling because you can watch the whole thing in one night. Um, they generally don't roll out with a lot of publicity, so people feel like they kind of own it, like they've discovered it and they want to tell their friends about it. So I think that that sort of generally leads to a more kind of cultish vibe around these kind of shows um what about top chef do you still watch that show i do yeah i do just because i feel like i feel like you need to know who like the bottom five people are you know like the last (laughs) five people (laughs) yeah like i feel like you know sometimes they open cool restaurants yeah so you could skip the first half and then like tune in for the last half of the season and feel like okay i know who these people are that's kind of how i tend to be with it but you know it's still really entertaining it's 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 the same as always it's interesting cuz last season they had it was right as all the the me too movement was picking up steam and they had john Bash on as a judge but then they scrubbed mm. him out of it which Tom Colicchio told me was like a really hard thing for them to figure out how to do, but they did it. And they also retroactively edited out some jokes that were sort of offensive after it had had aired. So I'm kind of curious to watch it now because I feel like Top Chef really 
helped propagate the notion of like the bad boy chef, like the kind of mm. hothead jerk <laughs> in the kitchen. The producers love villains on that show. But there's been a lot of other shows like the Great British Baking Show and, you know, Nailed It. And there's certainly a lot of other UK shows like my new favorite Million Dollar Menu where they build drama, but there's no real villains. They're not mean to anybody. So I don't know. I would personally like to see Top Chef kind of experiment with that a little bit more. So, Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the other thing that I think is going to be pretty essential viewing for food TV, you know, fans and followers is just the last season of Parts Unknown with Anthony Bourdain, the last episodes he filmed before he, you know, took his own life earlier Mm. this year. Um, he didn't finish the narration for all these episodes. There's only one episode that was in the can. I think that mm-hmm. that will be very interesting to see how they handle that because his narration is a huge part of that show. He famously wrote his own narration. Uh, and it's just like one of those things where I'm sure that if you take it out, it's a totally different show. So this will be a different season yeah. for a lot of reasons. Um, but you guys asked at the beginning of our little chat about like, what not excited about? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, do you guys watch a lot of Food Network? <laughs> no. No, I don't. I don't, no. I don't really watch a lot of Food Network. I mean, I got, I got <laughs> I some of to. my faves, but like there are just so many Food Network shows out there that I've just never heard of. I never see anybody talking about them and they just sort of come and go or, you know, it's just like a big shrug emoji, so that would be my that would be my answer there. I just wow. Think. Food so, Network in general. Pretty much anything on the Food Network. <laughs> I mean, Triple D I like always got a place in my heart for Triple D. You know, Andrew oh, Zimmer is going to have a new show on the Food Network, so I'm excited about that. But any sort of like summer grilling challenge or like the Halloween baking festival. Amazing. So fall in general, we are looking to the streaming platforms and no longer on Food Network for our. Food pretty, TV. Pretty the much, streaming platforms, Andrew Zimmern's new show, Big Food Truck Tip, it's called, and Good Eats Reloaded. <laughs> Is that just about the front of good of food trucks? <laughs> yeah. That's right. It's about the tip you leave a good food truck, I think. Oh. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we look forward to watching all these shows. Thank you for guiding us through them, Greg. Yeah. Have a great afternoon. Always a pleasure. So we're talking about fall preview today. So we wanted to bring on our senior editor, Daniela Galarza, to talk about some of the cookbooks that we should be excited about this fall. Uh, Hi, Daniela. Hi, how are you? Great. So first of all, tell us why fall is the big season for cookbooks. I think that uh, publishers know that people are getting ready to shop for the holiday season, and so they save their biggest cookbooks and as many cookbooks as they want for the last three months of the year. And so it ends up being so many cookbooks coming out at once. And what are some of the ones that you're really excited about personally this fall? Personally, I'm really excited about a lot of the books that tackle, I guess, what you might call home cooking versus restaurant-inspired cooking. Mm -hmm. Um, I really like Julia Tertian's Now and Again um, go-to recipes inspired me of endless ideas for reinventing leftovers. She wrote um, Small Victory two years ago, and she wrote one of our favorite cookbooks, um, Feed the Resistance, last year. And I love her style. I think she's really good at putting a big meal on the table and then showing you how you can use any leftovers for food the next couple of days. Um, 
Chrissy Teigen has a cookbook out this year. Mm. Highly anticipated. I really love Chrissy Teigen. Um, her book is so, so funny. <laughs> it made me laugh out loud so many times. Um, she, she writes like she talks. She writes like she tweets. She's, she's great at that. And I just, um, I love it in this book also. She has her mom in it and her mom, Pepper Ty, um, has some choice quotes in here. Um, she says something like, one thing that's got me through life is that I'm not allergic to peanut oil because if I was, my mom, Pepper Ty, would have traded me in for a better, hurtier model. <laughs> so with, with a lot of celebrity books, um, there's this assumption that they don't really pay attention to the recipes or that they're not really testing, but this is not the case with Chrissy Teigen. Yeah, I mean, the last one was really highly rated. I also know that Chrissy Teigen has a huge team behind her that's testing recipes and making sure because... It's, you know, even if I haven't made many recipes from this book and I can't personally testify to that, um, I would say that she has this whole team behind her. And not only that, she has a reputation for tech. Right. If one of these recipes doesn't work, people are going to tweet at her and go crazy. <laughs> I mean, she has too much on the line to uh, risk it. What, what other books are you looking forward to? So I am also really excited about Bottom of the Pot. Um, by Naz Bavarian. She's an Iranian cook based in Southern California who writes really poetically about um, being an immigrant in this country and learning the food of her uh, heritage through her mother and grandmother. It's just really beautiful writing and it, it, it makes me want to cook. She's got a lot of things that Iranians might make at home, but that anyone might make at home. Like, I think a lot of people just make rice and eggs at home to eat when they're alone and don't feel like cooking a huge meal. And and speaking of cooking for yourself, um, I live alone, and so I think about that a lot. Um, I really love Chef Anita Lowe's cookbook, Solo. Ah, it's okay. beautifully written. Um, she is formerly of uh, Anissa in the West Village, and we were all sad when that closed earlier this year, but she's got this incredible cookbook, um, a modern cookbook for a party of one. It's sort of the anti- cook for yourself book though i mean she you know the recipes are written to to cook for one person but it's easy to double them or triple them or however you want to do it um but mainly what she does is she shows you how to use professional techniques to sort of simplify cooking and she's not afraid to use the microwave and she's not afraid to use toaster oven and um she writes them in that some days you'll want to eat light and healthy and on other days butter is a perfectly good substitute for love I love that. I couldn't agree more. Also, Ina Garten has a cookbook this fall, which um, is bound to be a blockbuster. Can you talk about her history in selling cookbooks? Yeah. Um, Ina's new book is called Cook Like a Pro. Um, the premise is that she talked to a lot of the chefs that she um, at restaurants that she likes to go eat out at, chiefly in New York, and sort of got a few tips from them. I think it's mostly sort of her memories of seeing cooking on the plate. So she'd be diving out and see a flavor pairing she hadn't seen before. And then she'd, she'd sort of use it at home or she'd see a technique she hadn't seen before and she'd use it at home and sort of adapt to the home cook. I think it's something I have done for a really long time and it's why she's been so successful and she's given us permission to sort of not be perfect all the time, but to use tricks and tips that, um, make us cook smarter not harder i guess and she is the best-selling cookbook in our modern era she um sold almost 500,000 copies of her last book which came out two years ago and this one is set to be a bestseller easily this year as well 
uh, data shows that anytime Ina puts a book out, she not only sells a lot of copies of her book, but it encourages cookbook sales for all authors. So all cookbook sales. Go <laughs> She's up. doing God's work for everyone. <laughs> why? Why is it? Why? <laughs> I mean, I have this theory that people know she's got, got a cookbook coming out, and so they'll look for it. And while they're on Amazon or at the bookstore, they're going to see other other books while they're there. Why are people so drawn to her books? Is it just that they love her show so much? Because other TV chefs don't have that success in the cookbook world. Um, it's true. You know, I think she surpassed the sales of. Uh, people like Martha Stewart, who I love, or or even someone like Carla Hall, who has an incredible book out and is um, also on television. I think you know Ina's got this got this thing down. She knows how to appeal to a really jaded public and still sell them on this idea that they can be relaxed and happy in the kitchen. And what we all want right now, any kind of distraction that seems really easy, and also. I don't know, transports us to some seaside cottage in the Hamptons. <laughs> I guess I guess that's a good point. I guess we would all like to be transported there right about now. <laughs> as long as I'm cooking. Sure. Yeah, as long as she's doing the cooking, fine. Uh, great. Well, Daniela, thank you so much for taking us through some of the season's uh, most anticipated cookbooks. Everybody should go check out her fall preview to read about the rest of them because there's a lot on here, a lot to get excited about. Uh, thank you so much. Sure. Thanks for having me. Bye. The Upsell is recorded in the Vox Media Studios in New York, New York. The show is hosted by Amanda Glute, who's standing right there. Hi there. And me, Daniel Janine. We receive tons of support from Carrie Clements, who runs all of our booking and the logistics that help the show come together. Uh, Miles Ewell is our engineer. And peace. Peace.